Hey, this is David Ellison from Megadeth here. It is time to focus on metal. Hey Metalheads, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another edition of Focus on Metal. We have got a pretty cool show for you this week. It's kind of, uh, I don't know, you can consider it almost a companion piece to our ongoing, almost never-ending Kerrang! special, as this week we talked to uh, Gary Bushel. Gary was a longtime writer for uh, Sounds, and uh, also, as far as his memory is uh, recalling, did some work for Kerrang!, but basically... Uh, well-known as a guy that uh, did a whole lot of uh, very important writing for sounds. So although I call this a companion piece to our ongoing Kerrang! series, what put Gary on our radar to really want to talk to is the fact that he's been putting out a series of books called Sounds of Glory. And we actually got a hold of Volume 1, which is called Rocking All Over the World. And the stuff in here about Ozzy Osbourne and Thin Lizzy and Status Quo and... Rose Tattoo, Gary Moore, Judas Priest, all this stuff, and uh, basically stuff that Gary really couldn't publish before, but now it's uh, kind of a no one is safe kind of thing, as his uh, website always likes to proclaim. So Volume 1, Sounds of Glory, it's uh, called Rockin' All Over the World. Great book. I know I really enjoyed it, and also... Uh, Richie really enjoyed it as well, and and you know, like he says, talking all about a lot of these great stories he has from when rock gods ruled the earth, and then of course, volume two is the sounds of glory, the punk and sky years, which I uh, well, you know, with my uh, music sensibilities, doesn't interest me as much. But if you're into punk or sky, and you want to find out about what's going on back in the day with that as well, and things you really didn't hear about, then uh, definitely. You could uh, get into that one as well. And Gary's got a whole bunch of other books uh, that you can also look into and albums and all kinds of good stuff. And you can find all of that at Gary with two R's dash bushel with two L's dot co dot UK. And also just to let you know, Gary also does a, a little podcast of his own as well. And that one is called The Rancid Sounds. So Richie had a really uh, pretty killer conversation with Gary Ran well over an hour. Lots of great stories. It seems to be a theme lately of, of talking to guys who are writing about stuff back in the 70s and 80s. That everybody's got a lot of Aussie stories. And uh, Gary is no uh, no stranger to that. So lots of great Aussie stuff in this show. And of course, we've got so much to pack in that Gary's talking about this week. That no music. It's all just going to be Richie and Gary just rolling down memory lane and getting uh, some good stories and some good insight into what you can expect if you pick up a copy of Sounds of Glory, Volume 1, Rocking All Over the World. So I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show, and uh, why don't we get right into it right now. Hello. Is that Gary Bushel? Yes, buddy. Hey, Gary. It's Richie from Focus on Metal for the interview. How are you doing? Hello, Richie. How are you? I'm okay. You're in, where are you, in London? Yes, mate, yeah. All right, I'm in. I'm just outside of Boston here in the U.S. Yeah, so I'm going to be picking your brain here a lot going going in the way back machine. Christ. <laughs> <laughs> so how I got to know you, your name, I got into metal in like 86, 87. And yeah. I, I was, my dad used to buy the, the, the red tops, the mirror or the sun or the star. 
So I knew yeah. your I knew your name from that, and I I had no idea that you'd written for sounds for years before that, and like on, on a lot of the, the punk and the the ska, the mod bands, and and the metal guys. I had no idea you'd actually done that. So so how did you get to work for for sounds in, originally? Um, it was a bit of a stroke of luck, really, because uh, I've been doing a fanzine uh, called Napalm, as in the bomb, um, and. Um, I heard that they were looking for uh, people up at Sounds. So I just wrote off to Alan Lewis, who was the editor, and said, uh, hey, listen, I'm doing this. Any, any chance I could come on right for you? And he called me in for an interview. Uh, and I just took him in some of the interviews I'd done with people like Poddy Styrene and uh, Jimmy Percy and all those sort of people. Um, and a week later, and I wasn't even expecting this, a week later, I, I, I got a letter from him saying, you've got the job. It was a staff job, so I sort of completely lucked my way into a staff job. Because I just thought I'd freelance or something, but no, they'd give me a, a staff job. And the very first thing I wrote for them, the very first show I went to review, was The Clash at Aylesbury Flyers, supported by, for the very first time under this name, The Specials. Because wow. that morning they'd been the Covered Short Mags, uh, and by the evening they'd become The Specials. <laughs> and it was so long ago, Neville Staple was their roadie rather than one of the performers. Wow. <laughs> it was fantastic. All of a sudden, I've gone from just like being this kid who was into it and just loving it all to being someone who was actually representing the national paper and put my reviews in the paper. It was, it was quite mind-blowing at the time. Yeah, now, now tell me a little bit about the magazine itself because I, I never actually got a copy of it. I think it was... It was more or less gone by the time I, I, you know, I got into I got into hard rock and metal. I, I had Sylvie Simmons on. I don't know whether you know Sylvie. I um, know Sylvie. Yeah, yeah. She said that it was um, it was like um, it was a print magazine. There was no pictures in it. It was like a newspaper. Would would, you, would that be more? Or less yeah, what it, was? it was. It was. It was more like a, a like a, a newspaper, but there were pictures in it. Okay, it just they were fluffy. It was just like a newspaper that would have pictures in. Okay, so everything was black and white. Everything was black and white. We had colour on the front. We had colour for the logo. Okay. But inside it was all black and white, yeah. And was it was it a monthly magazine or was it uh, foreign? Oh, no, it was weekly. Oh. It was like the NME or Melody Maker. We were all, it was, that was the big three music papers at the time. It was NME, which was, in 1978, was the biggest seller. Melody Maker, which um, had been around for the longest but was in decline. And Sounds was the young upstart. And by... 1980, we overtaken the NME, and for a, a, a while, that sounds became the biggest selling um, rock paper in in Britain, uh, and it was, I think, largely because of that brilliant combination we had of of, uh, of not being blasé and dismissive of metal bands and rock bands, and also because we 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 didn't affect that sort of jaded cynicism which the NME had as a sort of um, that was the way they were, that was in their blood that they they'd be. Um, they'd take a sort of cynical, sneering view of, of what they were doing. And a lot of their writers wrote like they were writing um, university theses. You know? Yeah, so well, what writers in the uh, in, in the magazine did you look up to before you even got in there that you couldn't wait to meet? Well, uh, I mean, the writers, to be honest with you, the writers I loved were on the NME when I was, when I was just buying the papers. There was, um, the NME had people like Tony Parsons and Judy Virtual. Who were who were like the young guns? So they actually recruited the, the. I think the advert they had for them was, "We want the we want new young gun slingers." And they were these two guys, 
two two people who came in to be the, to represent the the, youth, the the face of punk, uh, and I love Parsons. I love his writing style. Um, on the on sounds though, the people don't realise this. Sounds covered punk before any me did, and they had people like James Suck who was writing in 1976, and John Dingham, who spelt his name a peculiar way, I think the H was at the end of it, um, he, he was writing about uh, uh, punk right at the, the very start. And then John Savage, who wrote that book on punk, England's Dreaming, um, he, he wrote for... And, and a lot of the big names that you'd be aware of, I mean, people like Jeff Barton um, and not Mick Wall at that stage, but Dave Lewis and Pete Silverton, uh, were, were, were already on sounds when I got there. Yeah, was um, was Pete Mikowski there? Mikowski was always a freelance, so I'm not sure when he started. I think he probably was in '78. Yeah. Yeah, because his name seems but to be coming up a lot. This very often. Yeah, he's <laughs> his name seems it seems to be coming up up a lot with a lot of the the Kerrang writers who well, he, as an influence. He, he, he did the lifestyle, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Can you remember it? <laughs> Very yeah. vaguely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so do you remember the very first uh, road trip that Sound sent you on? Uh, as opposed to reviews? Yeah. Um, I could... Um, Dearie me. If I went upstairs, if you could spare me for two minutes, I could probably tell you. Um, no, no, it's, but, okay. it, it's, it's all right, um, Gary. I, I remember the first... I mean, I remember... Early, what, what I did early on. I mean, I remember I did the Clash pretty uh, pretty early on, um, and I did um, the Jam in August of 1978 because that's when all mod cons came out. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I do, I, I do remember some of the early stuff. I, I, I've got a feeling they sent me down to interview the Boomtown Rats, and I wasn't that impressed with um, Geldof because he's always playing mind games and trying to. He, he wasn't a straight interview but the skids supported them and I thought they were terrific yeah yeah what, the skids from uh, Scottish band yeah were you big into the like I know you ended up doing a lot of the hard rock and the metal bands were you big into that music as well it's just that you seem to be when mentioned. I was a kid um, I'd been up until about uh, 1970 uh, uh, no, no sorry by the end, up until the end of the 60s the only music I really listened to was like UK pop reggae and and um, uh, soul, some of the and facts and stuff like that. And then I remember one top of the pops, which was the British weekly uh, chart show. One particular episode of Top of the Pops, they had Black Sabbath doing Paranoid and Deep Purple doing Black Knight. And I thought, fucking hell, this is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> this is like music I'd never heard before. And of course, I got Deep Purple in rock, I got the Sabbath albums, and then um, uh, round about that, pretty soon after that, you had all the glam rock bands coming through, and I loved that as well. Yeah, uh, and I think by '76 you started to have the pub rock bands like Eddie and the Hot Rods and Doctor Feel Good, and of course Thin Lizzy were magnificent. And that was they were so I, yeah, I loved all that sort of stuff. Um, I wasn't so much into the prog stuff. I thought it was a bit dull and self indulgent, but I loved that. I genuinely loved hard rock. Yeah, that did, thing, of course. Yeah, did you did you find that um, Alan was sending you to to like on on junkets? Rather than you going into no, him mentioning bands, or what, what was our relationship like? No, because I tell you what, I was very, very 
um, puritanical and very, very socialist. And, and me and a guy called Dave McCulloch, we were like, we were seen as the angry young men of sounds at the time. And we would say, we don't want no free trips. We don't want that. We're not sending out to the record companies and the music business and all that shit. We don't want that. We want to write about bands we like because we think they're justified, not because some PR's paying for us. And we were very, very solid on that. And the very first band I changed my mind about and actually t took a trip to America with was the specials. And I only did that because um, uh, Jerry, Jerry Dammers, who was even more puritanical than me, he said, you've got to come. You've been writing about us since you started. Some fucking old girl. But um, I, I, didn't, I, I don't think I did any rock bands until I made yeah, and I always like Maiden being uh, good East End boys. They, you know, they, they, was a, they had a, a bit of pace and urgency about me. It, it, I, I, I appreciate that a lot. Yeah, did, do you remember the first time you heard about them? Like, what, did you just go to a gig and they played, or did someone actually tap you on the shoulder and say, "Look, you got to check out this band, Iron Maiden"? Well, I was involved with the Cockney Rejects. Uh, I managed the Cockney Rejects. Um, and it was all around the same time, and they were playing pretty much the same circuit. Both bands played the Bridge House, and the Maiden obviously played the Ruskin Arms and places like that. And, and so I was hearing, you've got to see this band. They were like a proper a proper rock band. But, um, and so that's why I went to see them in the first place, because I was hearing things from people that I trusted their opinion, that this was a band worth seeing. Um, and I got, the great thing, I got on with... Um, oh, God, my brain is so bad now. I got on with... Uh, uh, give me a minute. Paul Diano really well. Mm -hmm. And uh, Diano was was quite a character. Diano was, was was like a wide boy, and he'd go on stage with a pork pie hat on, which was like the two tone thing, and he'd <laughs> say how much he loved scar and things like that, just to wind up the crowd a bit. <laughs> but he, he, uh, they, you know, they they had a great energy about them, and the crowd they got wasn't like uh, the usual heavy metal crowd. They were they at the time they seemed more. Almost like they could have come off the terraces at Upton Park. Yeah, yeah. It's just that you know you hear so much over the years about this new wave of British heavy metal scene. How how big was the scene? Like, was it just a couple of bars that they all played in, or was there genuinely a, a, a scene there for new for the well, new wave? Well, it wasn't as big as you think it was from, from all the coverage you got and all. The, you know, it, it, it was an example of something being written about in like punk was. It was um, something that was really gained traction and, and reached a massive audience on the basis of quite small beginnings. I mean, they would go to places like the Sound House, where, and that would be full of people, but it, when we say it's full of people, it's only a few hundred people. It wasn't, it wasn't Wembley Stadium or anything like that. So uh, they would play, they would sell out uh, the Ruskin Arms, but again, you're talking about a few hundred people. It really was, I think, the oxygen of publicity that um, that uh, Jeff Barton gave, and it was, uh, I think it was Alan Lewis who came up with the new wave of British heavy metal as a tag. But when they tried to do that compilation of, that first compilation around that time, which was probably 80, was it? Yeah. Um, it, was quite, it was pretty clear that there weren't that many great bands. Um, and, the, and the best bands were the ones that came through. Uh, and, and the, the ones that were sort of over, over, overhyped and um, lucky to be even mentioned were the ones that fell by the wayside, I think. But you had Iron Maiden, uh, you had definitely, of course, in a completely different um, type of rock, uh, and Saxon. There weren't that many great bands other than that, I don't think. I mean, you used to wear Angel, Angel Witch and Samson and um, 
came mentally from down to that, but they weren't in the same league. Yeah, one of the bands that a lot of the right the Krang writers are bringing up, saying that they thought they'd be huge and and they never made it was Diamond Head. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't think they had the songs. Okay, I mean, the Maiden were serious about it. They went out and they got uh, very smart management in. Um, Rod Smallwood and Danny Taylor and they had a proper plan for how they were going to do it and they did it and they did it by touring and touring and touring and knowing they were going to take losses um, and, and that was repaid I suppose that sacrifice they made was repaid but it was, it, there was a lot of talk in, in some parts of the press that it was a post-punk development and it wasn't because Iron Maiden were around in um, in a in a Early fall from the mid seventies. Yeah, so so I mean, to be, they were the ones. The Maiden were the ones. They were the, they were the band. I thought these were the inheritors of Deep Purple or whatever. You know, they were. Whereas, whereas like Motorhead, who were almost they were they were genuinely co- coexisting with punk, and they were always doing gigs with the Damned and bands like that. Maiden were from a different tradition, but they had the energy and the excitement of the punk bands, and also they had fantastic musicians. Yeah, no. What a great guitarist he was. Oh yeah. No, you you were just about Maiden too. He just got rid of people. He didn't fit the vision. You you didn't last. Yeah, yeah. Now you you would, Gary. You would have seen uh, Tin Lizzy play a lot of shows, and you 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 obviously interviewed the Phil and and the guys in the band. Now over the years, I've heard that you know the punk the punk guys like Tin Lizzy, but why do you think that is? Well, literally, like, apart from anything, Phil, Phil was a genuine fucking rock and roller. He was absolutely brilliant in many ways. He was a poet, wasn't he? I mean, he could, he's, some of his lyrics you can put alongside Springsteen and people like that, and you think, yeah, this guy can write songs. But I think, I think it was that um, he loved punk, uh, and obviously Cook and Jones and people like that, he, he had the greedy bastards with them, didn't he? And they were doing stuff together. They, 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 they just had that. I mean, our punk was just rock and roll, wasn't it? Yeah, and and, Phil, uh, and Lizzie were just brilliant rock and roll. It's just a shame, really. They got they probably would have been bigger if it hadn't been for punk because punk got all the attention. <laughs> but um, uh, uh, when I interviewed Phil for the first time, when I met Phil for the first time, it was one of the very few times that I was actually tongue-tied about. You know, I'm speechless. I thought this guy's a fucking legend, <laughs> and he was. Yeah, well, at that, he, at, he, at that. he didn't disappoint. The only disappointing thing was right towards the end because the, the drugs uh, had kicked in too much. And um, I remember uh, the last time I interviewed him, um, uh, having to step over some Kotoko's groupie, and he was obviously the, the, the worst for wear on uh, something heavy. And you just think, what a shame has come to this to someone with this much talent. Yeah, well, what about the other Lizzie guys, did, like uh, Scott Gorm, Brian Downey and those guys? Did you get on with those? Yeah, I did. Uh, Gary Moore got on with um, most of all. In fact, I ended up going to Japan with Gary Moore. Yeah. Um, where, bizarrely, he was treated like a rock, like a proper rock good. It was like the Beatle movie all over again. I thought, uh, I thought Gary, obviously, a tremendous blues guitarist, a very funny guy in his own right. And but he wasn't the best-looking bloke in the world. And he would go to these railway stations. And the, the young girls just in the Geisha girls, it was just unbelievable the, the, the sort of response he got from these, from these kids over there. Yeah. Now, now, one of the chapters in the book that I really liked was the last chapter. You have an apology to Judas Priest. 
Okay. Um, um, and I and I read it and I really enjoyed it. And it seems that like KK Downing just did not like you at all. Well, I had that spark. You know, you you sort of once you're part of the music festival initially, at least until you find your own feet, you sort of. It, uh, to my shame, I think I was caught up in that uh, in that sneering at them because they seemed so old-fashioned. Because it seemed um, it seemed such a, a a comic thing to me when I'm with them. <laughs> just, just everything about the way he looked and that, uh, and I didn't really take him seriously. And I should have done because they were an excellent band live. Yeah. Did, did you? Did you? Um, did you find that you like you said earlier on? You only wanted to, to like champion bands that you liked um, did the magazine ever send you to interview any bands that you hated um, not that I remember no okay I mean they didn't have that con- I mean with NME that was part of the of, of the way they were that they would uh, they liked tearing people down whereas um, actually what I've always did if I, if I didn't like someone I wouldn't try and stitch them up in a sliding way. I would just run all of their quotes. <laughs> I'd edit it so people could see for themselves that they were fucking idiots. <laughs> <laughs> did, did, you, did you ever do an interview? I mean, I, 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 I was always looking for young... I mean, I'm, I loved UFO. I mean, a long time I loved UFO. But I was more interested, I think, in finding bands that were breaking through. I'm more interested in, in, in getting behind bands as they were happening, than getting into the whole rock star thing. So when I saw something like Rose Tattoo, they just blew me away. I thought, what a great band. They look ridiculous in many ways. But they were um, a tremendous band. And probably if they hadn't looked so strange on stage, they probably would have done better than they did. And, and Twisted Sister, it was the it was the shock appeal of Twisted Sister. The, the way they looked like, I think I said in the book, they're dockers in drag law. Yeah, the more mascara. It just that um, sledgehammer sound there, and I just thought, wow, this is something different. Again, in, in many ways, a throwback, but yeah. so tight and yeah. so um, so uh, rabble rousing. You thought this this is a band that's going to happen. Yeah, now you were you. One of the chapters in the book was, um, I think it's in Covent Garden that they called out Man of War for a fight. That's right. And you were there. Did you honestly believe Man of War would show? Um, <laughs> it was all very bizarre. I mean, there was always a possibility they were going to show, of course. I didn't know Man of War, but uh, uh, as it happened, they didn't. <laughs> no intention of showing up, but it was all. They were, Twisted Sister took it all very, very seriously. And they were there ready to fight. But there was no sign of Man of War. <laughs> no chance at all of them coming. Yeah, the amazing thing about Dee Schneider is like he's. Teetotaler doesn't drink, doesn't take yeah. drugs. Very, very smart yeah, guy. He'd be like if he did. <laughs> <laughs> the, rhetoric, the, the rhetoric that pours out of him so <laughs> Christ, what would he be like if he was on the bottom of anything over there? Yeah. Now, now you mentioned UFO there. Um, yeah. When I talked to Sylvie Simmons, she when she talked about UFO, she said yes. that Pete Way was was great. She got on great with Pete, but that. Phil Mogg could be a little bit tougher to crack, that he was a little bit more guarded. Did you find that Phil um, was the same with you? Oh, that, that is true. Pete was very, very easy to talk to, mostly because he was always drunk. <laughs> but Phil, <laughs> Phil, Phil, I mean, Pete Way was the only man ever that Shannon Osbourne banned from being around Aussie because he was a bad influence. <laughs> 
But Phil Mugg, Phil had a sort of, he, in drink, his fighting side would come out and he liked to fight. Um, <laughs> he, did, he, did, he did get a bit, he did turn a bit in drink, Phil, whereas Pete just became more lovable. Yeah. Uh, Pete, Pete was there's no side to Pete. He just he, that's exactly what he was like. He just wanted to to play and to rock. <laughs> we, we still remember with with affection the gold goblets as his as his um, bladder became weaker and weaker. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm I'm asking all the writers this this question. Um, you're on the road with a band. Was it difficult to decide like what goes on tour stays on tour? If you know what I mean, like what goes in and what doesn't. Well, obviously, when the band were married, you w- they wouldn't want you writing about girls climbing up outside the hotel, outside the outside of hotels to to try and get in their bedrooms and stuff like that. So you had to exercise a little bit of discretion. But I would always try. I, I wasn't really interested in putting over my opinion of them in in a feature. If you, you had reviews for your opinion. And your analysis. I was more interested in getting the colour out of them. I wanted to to show the way they were, the way they, what they were like on the road, and how they how they entertain themselves on the road. So that's what I was looking for. I'm just looking for fantastic stories, the sort of stories that people, probably other writers wouldn't have covered because it wasn't what they were looking for. I I wanted to know more about what made these people tick. Yeah. So. I would ask probably different questions of a lot of people. Yeah, but I mean, like, yeah, I mean, if if someone in a big band was getting a blowjob, it wasn't really my business to be writing about it. <laughs> That's what I thought. I mean, I'm, I won't, it wasn't it wasn't the tabloids. Yeah. Did, did you find that like a lot of a, a lot of the, the alcohol and all that? The bands are just like just bored off their tits. They had nothing to do until stage time. Yeah. Just... I mean, yeah. And of course, um, the weird thing is, of course, as well. You might start. You might have all started out as friends, but there's five of you in the band. It it can end up, and it often does end up, with tiny little things becoming inflamed into raging rivalries and hatreds and a terrible degree of of loathing just because you happen to be on the road with these people and and, and trapped with them to the degree where people, some big bands now won't even, as you probably know, won't even record together. Yeah. Because they can't stand each other so much. <laughs> they would actually record their bass parts and their guitar parts and their drum parts, etc., all in separate studios rather than spend any time, unnecessary time with each other whatsoever. They sound check at different times. They have different dressing rooms backstage. It's just bizarre that it can become such a business that it's more about carrying on and making the money than rather than enjoying yourself. Yeah, did, did, you, ever, did you ever go on, on the road and, like, the band really didn't want that to do with you, and it just ended up being a complete disaster. Um, I don't believe so back then. No, I can't think of any examples like that. Okay. Um, there, there were times. No, I can't, I can't think of any time like that. Okay. What? What, what about? I, I, I don't remember having blazing rows with bands, or, or falling out of them, or, or or not being allowed access. I mean, the people I've, I've tended to write about. I tended to get on with. Yeah, well, what about... Because the- they knew, largely because they knew I wasn't going to stitch you up. But, but there were people you were always worried about. I mean, I was always um, a bit dubious about doing anything with Richie Blackwell because he had such a terrible reputation for getting people drunk or drugged or stitched up in terrible ways. Um, so you, you to exercise caution with, with people like Blackwell, but 
most people were grateful that I was actually, they knew I was there primarily to reflect for how they were rather than, as I said, rather than sort of construct anything around some great theory about what they were and how they should be. What about what about the um, the PR guy or, or the road managers? Did you ever have any run-ins with them? Um, have you heard something that I can't remember? You're no, <laughs> I know. A, a, Gary, a lot of the questions I'm asking all the writers. Um, oh, actually, I don't, I don't remember. I remember, though, people falling foul of, uh, of bands. I don't remember actually falling foul of bands. The only time... The only, um, and uh, this is not... Uh, a bad experience per se. I, a couple of things happened to me. The, one of them was with Ozzy Osbourne, where he wanted me to write his book, uh, and we spent probably fourteen hours doing speed uh, and lots of lots of alcohol and some Chinese food. But some degree of, of uh, interview went ahead, and at the end of the night, I was in the place they were. Um, they were renting, which was near the American Embassy in Grosvenor Square, uh, and watching telly with him and falling asleep and then feeling something hit my head. And I thought, he's phone telling me that bastard. So I sort of growled at him and went to bed. And it wasn't until two days later that I realised he'd shaved my eyebrows off. But <laughs> I was asleep. <laughs> that was not, uh, you know, he did that to everybody. I was lucky, really, because, you know, he, he, he was terrible pissing in people's pockets, shaving their hair or whatever. Um, that was um, that, that was about the worst I got. No, I did get raided by the police once, and I never really got to the bottom of that. <laughs> I, I get the CID turn up at my house in when I was living in Essex, uh, and asked if they could look around. They didn't have a warrant, but I said, "Yeah, come on, what are you looking for?" They wouldn't tell me. But to take to cut a long story very short, it ended up someone had told them that Motorhead's stage bomber had been stolen. Now, if you remember, this was a Lancaster bomber. He had a twenty-foot wingspan. And some of them told them I had it. And they're looking for it behind my settee, behind my sofa. I said, it's not going to be. They're looking for it under the bed. I said, come on, if I dismantled it, the fucking bed would be up by the ceiling. <laughs> and and, and they, they, uh, it was just, uh, it, that genuinely happened. And I, I never, ever found out who was responsible for it. Though I suspect Dougie Smith was, might have been. Yeah. So did did you have a, a good relationship with Lemmy? Uh, I think I mean Lemmy Lemmy was pretty easy to get on with. I thought pretty basic guy. I mean you know, he was straightforward type guy. He didn't have any, any dark side to him that I was aware of. Okay, he just liked his book and he liked his, his speed and his rock and his football machine. <laughs> yeah, no, one I, of the stuff really bad. He was a guy called Ronnie Gurr who had given the Stranglers a bad review. This is in the early days, so I guess 79, something like that. Um, and the Stranglers had a following who were known as the Finchley Boys. And they kidnapped Ronnie, stripped him naked, and suspended him from uh, the ceiling of the gig they were doing. So that was, that was the revenge of the Stranglers on, on Ronnie Gerford and my bad review. I was quite lucky, so I tended to go to the States in particular, with Ross Halfin. And Ross could be so obnoxious in drink that no one ever took against me because it was Ross there. <laughs> <laughs> Ross was always the victim. 
of any uh, of any of any bad feeling. Yeah, yeah. I because would have been the one who, who created the bad feeling in the first place. <laughs> I know he did a lot of work with uh, with Def Leppard, and I know one of the chapters in the book. Uh, you were on the road with uh, was Ross there the one in '83 and went on the Paramania tour. Yeah, he was. Yeah, so you actually saw yeah. that band like break the states. That's um, right. You and of course a few years later, like Steve Clark, of course tragically killed himself. Like with, with, he had an alcohol problem. Do you get any sense around the, the leper guys at the time that like, they're all really young? That they they were just you know they, they didn't really know how to handle the fame back then. Yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, all of a sudden, you're like kids who've been given the key to Santa's grotto. Everything you've ever dreamed about, you've got on the basis basically of one album, that Pyromania album. It just transformed them from being musicians into into rock gods, if you like. And it was the amount of hysteria, again, without overdoing the Beatles analogy, it, it was like Beatlemania. They couldn't move without being screamed at by uh, adolescent girls. Uh, and it was with Def Leppard where uh, one girl actually scaled the outside of the hotel all the way up to the 10th floor to knock on Rick's, um, uh, Rick Savage's window and make herself available to him while he was on the phone to his girlfriend at the time. Uh, and it was just... And I remember um, they would go to hotels and when they checked into the rooms there would already be women in the rooms because they bribed the hotel staff to let them in to be in Joanne's bed. And they would be beautiful women, but they all they were all beautiful women at this stage. And it, when you've got all that, that madness, when you've got access, easy access to whatever drugs you want, constant access to alcohol, it takes a very strong band to survive that. And certainly you need a hands-on management team who, who understand what you're going through and understand how to keep you out. It's no surprise now that Phil and people like that, Phil does not even touch alcohol now. He hasn't done for years, has he? No. Still since, since I think uh, early 90s? Yeah. Yeah, he's... Yeah, I mean, it, 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 to be honest with you, you either drink yourself dead, like so many unfortunately have, or, or you sort of must make that change and think I'm not going to do this myself I want to live I want to enjoy the fruits of what I'm doing uh, and this is probably the only way I can do it did, did, Gary did you ever sit across from someone and interview them and you were just worried about them you knew that they were like losing all sense of reality that they just couldn't handle the fame well certainly I was worried that last time I interviewed Phil Phil Lillard because he he was the shadow of the man that I'd, I'd, I'd been in awe of and the, the man I met in 78 and this is what I don't know. Uh, uh, five or six years afterwards, um, and that was sad to see someone who I had up on a pedestal. You know, see they were sinking so low. It, but it was the same with Malcolm Owen from the Ruts. I, I, I loved the Ruts and championed the Ruts. They were one of the first bands I wrote about in sounds. And to see him kill himself with uh, heroin, it was just a, a tragic waste. Yeah. Yeah. Now there's and, and, and you you learn how they are, how they lie all the time. They kid they kid themselves, they kid other people, they they tell them that oh, they, 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 they that becomes the way a junkie is. The junkie would just constantly wrap himself up in falsehoods because um it's his way of surviving, I suppose. 
Yeah. Did, did you find that, like, the drug scene in the U.S. was a lot different than, than it was in the U.K. when you went over? I remember coming to New York in 82, I think. It might, yeah, I think it was 82, with a band called Riot. Yeah. Uh, um, and become, being aware how common cocaine use was. In fact, that everyone you went, um, could we go into lawyers' offices? Could we go into music company people? Not so much, not so surprising with the record company people, but you go into lawyers' offices and they were chopping out lines. You think, what the fuck, really? <laughs> At home, it was that widespread. I mean, it was so much part of the fabric. Of, it wasn't even remarked upon. It was just something that happened. Yeah. Um, and uh, obviously, we we had the cocaine culture idea too but not to that extent yeah there's probably about 12 chapters in the book and i'm thinking it must have been very difficult to uh to pick what went in it but i, I just want to name a couple of a couple of the big bands that that were around the scene at the time and, and they're not in the book and if you didn't interview them that's fine but like did you ever interview any of the guys in zeppelin no okay um actually not no i love Led Zeppelin, but i don't think they were particularly active around the time that I was writing. Yeah, no, I, I know, yeah, I know you interviewed Ozzy a lot, and you, you're, you're friends with yeah. Ozzy. What about the other guys in Sabbath? Uh, I never, um, I mean, I met them, but I didn't see Sabbath until much later. They, no, I didn't see him with Ronnie James Dio. Or, so I didn't do, uh, no, I, wasn't, I, I didn't do them. Yeah, um, what about Van Halen? No, I never did the big American bands like that. I, I wish, uh, I mean, the, the closest I got to um, Aerosmith was um, watching Steve Tyler uh, have a particularly bad time in Connecticut where he'd come on and managed three songs before he collapsed. Fell <laughs> <laughs> out of it. And Rose Tattoo was supporting. Rose Tattoo was opening on the, oh, I can't remember who was the second act well, but uh, Rose Tattoo opened the bill and uh, Aerosmith headlined. Uh, and I was hoping to get an extra chat, but I don't think he was talking much to anyone at the time. They brought in, the management brought in two really massive minders the next day just to, to keep him away from substances. Yeah. yeah. I'd, love to, I'd love to have done it ever since I never got the chance. I think if I hadn't left uh, Sounds in the summer of 1984, I probably would have done um, Guns and Roses. I probably would have done Nirvana. I would have been around for all those guys that... Uh, it wasn't to be. Yeah, what about um, David Coverdale or any of the guys in Whitesnake? <laughs> I think I'll sit David Coverdale. <laughs> I can't remember why now. Coverdale, I think I'll give a bad review. <laughs> and also Michael Schenker. But in fairness, it wasn't my fault with Schenker. It was just all part of a wind-up that um, Pete and Phil from UFO were trying to perpetuate. They were just leaking stories of of Shrinker's madness, which I was more than happy to print. Did you ever get? Uh, yeah, did, no. did any of the bands ever come after you for a review, or um, a live review, or, or an album review? Did they ever what? Sorry. Did they ever come after you? Like uh, they got on to Alan Lewis and said, like, we're, you know, well, who the fuck is this guy writing this crappy review? No, I mean, I, I managed to upset a lot of people. Um. And most of them resorted to writing songs about me. I think I had about seven songs written about me by various bands. The most prestigious being Crass, 
who wrote a song called Hurry Up Gary, The Parsons Farted, which attacked me and Tony Parsons. And Adam Ant had a song called Press Darlings, which had the immortal line, if passion is a fashion, Bush was the best dressed man in town. <laughs> but on the B-side of one of his hits, so we'd always put it on in the jukebox when we were in pubs. Yeah. Um, but nothing painful. Um, the band that became The Alarm were started off as a mod band called Seventeen, and they turned up uh, and said, "Stop me outside my office when I was with Fox and Tom from the Foreskins," and and they said, uh, "We've come to kidnap you." And Tom said, "No, you haven't. Fuck off!" And they did. <laughs> I was a bit scared of him, but uh, we then called them back and said they could come for a drink with us instead. Um, but no, nothing. The worst thing that happened to me as a result of a band probably was the Eurythmics, bizarrely, who hated the press. So in 1986, at the end of their UK tour, they invited various proper uh, newspapers, the, the, the rock correspondents of those papers, to fight each other at an after-show party, which was at a club in the Covent Garden. And I was supposed to be fighting a fellow called John Blake, who ended up being a publisher, um, and ended up instead having to fight Lloyd Hannigan, who was a welterweight heavyweight champion. Uh. <laughs> it was very painful. <laughs> I managed two rounds. That was the worst times me. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of pain, so as a result of a rock band. Yeah, Gary, did you ever write for Kerrang! magazine? Yes, I did. Okay. Did you write a lot for it? I used to, I contributed I contributed freelance stuff and I think I really can't remember how much I wrote for them. I know I wrote various things for them. I'm pretty sure for some reason I also wrote about television for them in one issue. I just seem to have a memory of that, but my memory is not good and I haven't got any back issues for Kerrang, so I can't I can't actually tell you, but Kerrang was born after we had an experiment with producing one-off magazines. And I think this would have been probably 1981. We had a series of one-off magazines. I think the first one I remember was doing was Dance Craze, which was about the two-tone bands. And then I did an Iron Maiden special, and I did an Ozzy Osbourne special, and I think Kerrang! was born around that time. And it was... The title was from Jeff Barton, but the impetus for it and the creation of it came from Alan Lewis. Uh, and a lot of people from towns would freelance for Kerrang. And I certainly did 84, 85, I think I was writing stuff from. But I don't remember what I was writing or who I was writing about. Okay. <coughs> so, so, like, the yeah, somebody's, I've, got, I've actually got a list of things I wrote for sounds, which I'm so glad I took at the time because my memory is like a sieve now and I, I struggle to remember what I did yesterday. But, uh, yeah. I mean, I actually, I, I saw, um, I bumped into Steve Biggle from the Buzzcocks. Uh, I was chatting to him and he said, oh, I remember that thing you, when you interviewed me in 1978. I said, I never interviewed 1978. He said, you did. So I've gone back and checked the book and yet yeah, there it was. <laughs> I had no memory of it whatsoever. Wow. I'm not the most reliable. Uh, unless I've written it down, I, I'm, my memory's not too uh, too hard. Yeah. Now, the, 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 I can't let you go without asking you the chapter in the book about Ozzy Osbourne. I was pissing myself laughing. Fucking horrible. The amount, the amount of alcohol that guy. The, the story that I love, Gary, is the one where Ozzy cancelled the gig and Don Arden showed oh, up at the restaurant. This was Lester, I think. 
Yeah. That's but, right. He said he had food poisoning. Yeah. He just didn't want to do the gig. He didn't, he didn't want to do the gig. He said he had food poisoning. And not too long after he cancelled the gig, we were all in the bar and he seemed fine to me. <laughs> um, and we were sitting there for over an hour. They kept paging us. Sharon Osborne, uh, Sharon Arden, as it would have been. Sharon Arden come to the come to the phone, and it was her father trying to get hold of her. And then it stopped. We thought, oh, he's given up now. And then he's turned up, Don Arden, who, as you know, was a sort of like a, a gangster figure. Um, he's turned up, the air turns blue, and they're slagging each other off. <laughs> and she diffuses it, Sharon, just simply by saying, Daddy, we're getting married. And all of a sudden, the mood changes. Oh, it, he's hugging everybody, he's buying champagne. It's just an incredible about turn. And then we, we sit there, and I'm not even, even to this day, I don't know whether that, the reason they got married was just to deflect Don Arden's anger. Um, and it all ended with Don and David, her brother, went back to London, and we're sitting in the bar, but and there was a group of Japanese businessmen, I think, and Ozzy started pelting them with uh, rolls, which was causing a bit of a scene. And then two uniformed policemen turned up in the hotel. And Ozzy went out, he's, he's drunk off the, completely off the logic spectrum. <laughs> and he said, fucking cunts, he said, fucking cunts, I'm going to, I'm going to do them. And there's me holding him with one arm and Sharon Arden holding the other arm, just trying to stop him from breaking any contact with these two cops. <laughs> because they would have ended up disastrously. And somehow we managed to restrain him, the two of us together. I'm sure she was stronger than I was. And uh, <laughs> it, uh, we managed to get him off the bed. But he was a terrible, terrible person to be around drunk. <laughs> I, mean, I think in the book, I think in the book, it, um, we talk, I talk about the time we, we tried to check into some uh, Marriott hotel in Florida and he decided he needed a crap. Yeah. Rather than... Rather than ask for the restroom, like a normal person would, he actually dropped his trousers and went in the ashtray <laughs> in the foyer. We were understandably asked to leave. <laughs> if you're, you're out with Ozzy trying to get a story, and surely none of this you can write about. <laughs> we all made the book. <laughs> <laughs> you want to watch out now, Sharon might come after you. <laughs> But uh, yeah, good too. Yeah, so so Gary, did you did you know Randy Rhodes at all? I think I was probably the first English writer to interview Mandy, and the last one to interview him before he died. Okay. So yeah, I did, and he was an incredible guitarist, obviously, but also really nice, easygoing, mellow fellow. You sit there and have a chat with, and he just loved the guitar. I mean, he could talk and talk about. The technique—he was. You don't need me to tell you how stunning he was live. He was an incredibly gifted guy, um, and a terrible loss. I'm just amazed that he even went up in that helicopter. Wasn't it? Was it a plane? Plane. Plane. plane yeah. I'm amazed he even went up in it because uh, it, it wasn't the sort of thing he was into. Yeah. Didn't even Sharon had a fling. Yeah. 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 Gosh, you might as well. <laughs> <laughs> and sure, I, think I'm, gonna, I think she thought he was going to be a, a superstar. Yeah, he I'm, should have been. He would have been. Yeah, I'm sure Ozzy was a saint himself, you know. Oh, no, Ozzy was a saint. He once did an interview where he said that he, he shagged all of his wife's friends. And 
he was asked, didn't she mind? And Ozzy's reply was, well, why should she? I'm fucking her as well. was <laughs> 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 terrible. Yeah, he, he must have been some man to go on a session with. Like, I'm talking like unpredictable. You don't know what the hell's yeah. going to happen. Yeah, yeah, it was a bit like being there in a ticking time bomb. But he was always, also very funny. I mean, he, he had the time in, and the jokes of a, of, of a, of a stand-up, I, I always felt. I remember once was in, I think it was in Sheffield or somewhere like that, and he said, um, I said, I think when the bar was closing or the hotel bar was closing, so I said, shall we have a short for the road? He said, great idea. And he ordered us both a bottle of Hennessy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> he, he was a hard man to keep up with. Yeah, we were around him when, um, when he used to put Sharon's clothes on because she took the clothes off him. Uh, no, I know the story though. No, I wasn't. I wasn't with him then. Okay, you're probably better yeah. off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I can't let you go, Gary. Oh, without asking you. Some guy out one. Sorry. Sharon knocked. A, Sharon knocked out an American uh, promoter once. Oh. I can't remember where we were. Ozzy was supposed to be headlining a festival, but when we got there, he was like second on the. Uh, he was under uh, on the undercard. Um, and she went up to this promoter who was a big guy and complained that Ozzy wasn't headlining. And he said, listen, little lady, all patronising. And she just went, posh, uppercut, chinned him, knocked him sparko. Wow. Brilliant. <laughs> so, so what, how, is, he, is Ozzy just, like, insecure that he, 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 like, he likes a drink to, you know, for the bravado and, and it's probably expected of him now. Like, but deep down, he's really an insecure guy. Ozzy? Yeah. Um, I mean, he started drinking when he was 14. So it was part of the, obviously, that drink culture he was part of. Um, and didn't see any reason to stop, really. <laughs> <coughs> I, remember, I remember him telling me in 1999 that he stopped drinking. Um, and then he told me two years later that he hadn't. And <laughs> he told Sharon he'd stopped. But what he did, he buried a load of, um, I think he lived in Buckinghamshire, and he buried a load of vodka in the back garden. And then a big back up. And then every night he'd go out, he'd say, I'm just walking the dog. And he'd just pick up a bottle of vodka. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I don't know what, I don't, I don't know why he drank other than the fact that it's what we all drank back then. We, we, it was part of the culture, I guess. Yeah. Um, one band I have to ask you about. Did you ever interview ACDC? No. Okay. Wish I had. Yeah. No, unfortunately. So I'm live, reviewed them, but never interviewed them. Yeah, it's just um, I think Malcolm got buried today, so it's all over the news. Ah, uh, no, thirty plus. Well, we 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 were in the states with my band um, the day he died, and we managed to slip thirty D's done the cheap into the set right at the end, just as our little um, our little um, memorial for him. Yeah. So so I know I did. Well, I was just thinking that because I was thinking the other day whether I could do a second collection of uh, of rock stories as opposed to punk stories. And I think I went through. I'm just seeing if I can find that list on me. There are a few bands who I interviewed who didn't make that that collection. Venom, for example. Oh, Cross. And Venom and Venom, yeah. Wasted. Yeah, that's know? that's Pete Way's band. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Terra Plain who became Thunder yeah that's Girls School Girls School yeah no, what I did what? oh you did you, did you interview Blackie Lawless yeah How did, what did you, what, 84 yeah what did you make of him like back then he, oh, I'd have to go and read it half I can't yeah, remember yeah he's a big guy 
I, I remember yeah. just being a huge man. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think I could do uh, another one if the chance arose. Yeah. But can you think of one band, Gary? Now, this is really going to pick your brain. Um, one hard rock or metal band that you thought would be huge and they never made it. Well, I did like Terraplane, and they never really uh, pulled it off. I think probably Rose Tattoo, because if Rose Tattoo had kept going, they I'm sure they would have cracked it because they were getting they were getting the same sort of audiences as Motorhead. In that it was a mix of people. The people at that gig, you had rockers, you had bikers, you had skinheads, you had punks, and you had geezers. You had people who just looked like walked off the terraces at a football match. And uh, it it was starting to build. And that, they had that great album. Um, the first album was great. Well, the first one that came out over here probably wasn't their first album in Australia, but uh, I can remember the cover. Uh, and then the second one, they had trouble with the production, didn't they? It was a bit of a, which, it just sounded like it was done through um, uh, through mud. It wasn't, it just wasn't, it, did, it lacked the normal Vander and Young sound. And then the third one, Scarred for Life, came out, and that was, but they never quite cracked it. They did a few festivals, they had a few, they did a, uh, a few attempts at cracking the states. They never, ever quite got there. I think how they looked on stage was a, a, a factor, because, they, the, the rest of the band was so huge and angry was so short. It, it, it did look incongruous. And you spent half, you spent the first, half the first number thinking, oh, not listening to the music, but thinking, hey, you should not look right that bloke, does he? I thought they were tremendous and they wrote some great songs and, and I wish they had made it a bit bigger. Yeah, didn't he end up singing a song in Neighbours? He did. <laughs> he did. It was for wasn't it for Charlene's wedding? I don't know. It was a long, I, that was a long time ago. Yeah, it was Kylie it was, Knows, wasn't yeah, it? Um, what was it called? It was a ballad, wasn't it? It was a ballad. That's right. Um, uh, it was when um, Kylie got married. Okay. Uh, Charlene, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, Gary, one of the things you have in the, in, the, in in one of the intros in one of the books was. You regretted leaving sounds and the music scene to go work for like the the, new, the newspapers in Fleet Street. Did you know what? Did you regret it at the time, or is this just something that you realised as the years have gone by? I thought that I see me and McCulloch had this um, conviction that the rock press should not be a load of old guys in tour jackets, jaded packs. It should be full of people who were young and hungry who wanted to get out there and make their mark and find bands of their own and write about exciting stuff. And I was just afraid of vegetating. I was afraid of compromising what I thought I should be doing. And so I thought it was time to move on. And that's the only reason I left was because I thought it was time that I didn't want to turn into an old man in a tour jacket uh, writing the 76 interview with the same pen you've done before to death and not wanting to go to gigs outside of your comfort zone and stuff. And Dave did the same. Dave uh, went before I did. But I, I didn't realise how much I'd miss it. Uh, I didn't realise... When, you, when you're living that life, you take it all for granted. You don't realise how privileged you are. You don't realise how wonderful it is. The experience you're having is had by very few people. Um, and you're rubbing shoulders with people who you hugely admire most of the time and respect. Uh, 
And I don't think I ever got close to that again. Um, I guess with comedians, I mean, I was, that's what I specialised in covering when I was on the uh, uh, national press, uh, the tabloid press. I'd, I'd be doing comedy legends, people who meant um, a lot in terms of English comedy culture. Uh, and so that was, that was a thrill. But it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same level of thrill as being chased out of places with the exploited or whatever. Yeah. Did you ever go to any of the Monsters of Rock shows in Donington? I, did, I must have gone to Donington, yeah. But I don't. I, I did, yes, but I don't remember which one. Must have been a good day then. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good year. Yeah. Uh, one final thing before I leave you, leave you go, Gary. I had yeah. Stefan Shirazi on as one of the first guests that we did the Kerrang! series on. Yeah. And he told me that if I was to talk to you that he wouldn't be where he was now if it wasn't for your help in the very beginning that you helped him get a, a journalist visa when he was very young. Yeah. And he just wanted me yeah, to say, so, if I was speaking to you, like, you know, that, that just to say thanks. Because he, like, he's... Oh, that's kind of him. Yeah, he's an amazing uh, 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 writer now. Yeah. Are you still working with Motorhead? Metallica. Is it Metallica? Yeah, he's been with Metallica for a long time. He's the fan club. One of the guys in the fan club. Oh, uh, okay. I didn't realise that. The last time I spoke to him, which was some years ago, he sent me a Motorhead shirt. <laughs> yeah. He... He could have been uh, working with Motorhead too, but Metallica is the one he's been yeah, on for now. Yeah, I yeah. think he was. I think when I think Metallica now, uh, yeah, there's another band I probably would have interviewed. Yeah, I think they were like eighty three, eighty four. Yeah, you were probably on the yeah, way out then. Yeah. A lot of the pop. Go- hey, he was a good writer. He was a good writer, Stefan. I was, I was happy to help wherever I came. I think we were good. Yeah. Did you find Gary a lot like in the eighties? A lot of the like the the pop stars are like fake, like you can spot it a mile away. That you miss the genuineness of the rock guys. There's a lot of more fakes in um, in pop, obviously, and you, you, it does. You can see the eyes, the the, the mouth smile, and the eyes don't. You know, you you can tell them straight away that they and they don't really believe in what they're doing. For all, for all their faults as human beings, rock stars in general love what they're doing because they love. The music they love, the performance. It's not just for them. Fame in itself is not the aim. Fame is the byproduct, which is what it should, is how it should be. Yeah. Um, so, so do you still uh, do you still do the podcast? Yeah, you do. Yeah, still yeah. do the podcast. Uh, we got the um, Sounds of Glory now, which is uh, uh, basically a uh, because it's a, a, a licensed radio station. I can play anything I like from whatever time, so I tend to mix up. Um, Indie bands and punk bands and ska bands and stuff like that, but also the rancid sounds where we play new bands. Okay, so I think it's quite a good thing to to, to give them a platform. In some ways, even though it's never been easy to get your music online, it's never been hard to get heard. It is now, so it's um, I try and do a little bit of a service all we can. We've got a great rock band. I don't know if you heard of them. A band from um, Hastings over here called Admiral Sir Cloudsley Shovel. Oh, have you no. heard of these? No, they're a good hard rock band. Nice. They're the sort of band I'd have written about back in the day, for sure. Okay, okay. So do you keep up with the the hard rock scene, like all the younger bands uh, in in the UK now at all? Well, my daughters um, are into it, so I do it by process of osmosis. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they like a whole range of bands. That uh, It's incredible, really. Yeah. 
I think it's still, it's still there. That's the great thing. You do need that antidote to the horrible over here. You've probably got, not got it to the same extent in the States, but over here, the, the, the X Factor Simon Cowell influence on the pop charts. Is, oh, that's here. It's huge here. It's, yeah, it's, it's depressing. Yeah. I think the one thing, Gary, when, you know, the likes of Kerrang and Sounds, a lot of the, a lot of the pers- there was a lot of personalities in music. And I think that's lacking now. Like you had your David Lee Roth and your Steven Tyler and all the, yeah. you know, there, there's none of them now. They're all faceless. No, it's all a bit calculating now, isn't it? Yeah. I can't imagine fans like Dumpy's Rusty Nuts. <laughs> 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 true, true. They're great characters, even giant people, weren't they? I mean, people like Ozzy Osbourne. These people are almost carved out of, Gold, aren't they? They just like you couldn't behave like that now and be accepted. You couldn't. Ozzy couldn't open his mouth uh, in the way a, a, a young Ozzy, an equivalent of that, would probably get himself arrested. He would certainly get himself banned for uh, uh, upsetting the codes of political greatness very quickly. Yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, can can you imagine Ozzy being out now with people with cell phones? No, back then, can you imagine? <laughs> oh, <dude. laughs> so, so Gary, do you, do you have um, a website where people can get in touch with you, or are you on in, Instagram and all that um, stuff? Yeah, it's www.gary2rs-bushelwood2rs.co.uk. Okay, well, Gary, it's been a pleasure talking to you and going down memory lane. Thank and... Thanks for calling, mate. Yeah, no problem. Have a good rest of the day. Thank you, All right, Gary. Cheers. Bye. And there you go. Richie's talk with Gary Bushel. And again, you really want to go out and pick up your own copy of Sounds of Glory, Volume 1, Rocking All Over the World. Richie and I both separately came away with the same impression, which was, holy crap, easily could go with another two, three, four, five volumes of just that stuff. And, you know... It, it, maybe it'll happen, right? I mean, he definitely, in talking to uh, to Gary, Richie uh, had him kind of picking his brain about some other great interviews that he uh, or the stuff that he hasn't published yet. So who knows? Maybe we'll get at least another one with Volume 3 and, and, and more of the bands that we really love and want to read about. Or maybe he'll just, you know, put out an entire book of nothing but Aussie stories. Maybe a good way to celebrate Aussie's final tour. Tie it right in together, right? Why not? What do you think, Gary? Great marketing idea. But again, if you want to check out any of the stuff that Gary is doing or has done, you can go to Gary, with two R's, like he said, dash bushel with two L's dot co dot UK. So we don't know what is up yet for next week's show. Got a few options and I'm sure the other things might drop into my lap, but, uh, you know, got Shanker Fest coming up in uh, in a couple days on Friday, so I guess I got to figure out what the hell I'm doing in order to make the show deadline for next week. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant.
It's over. Go home.